The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome to our second installment in our 2020 MDs for the ND series, and that would be MDs for the new decade. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan program. Not an MD, but really, really blessed to know so many phenomenal vegan and plant-based physicians who are changing this world very much for the better and educating us all so profoundly. And one of my favorites is our guest this week, and he is Dr. Joel Kahn. Dr. Joel Kahn is America's holistic heart doc. He is a professor at the Wayne State University School of Medicine, a practicing cardiologist, and also a wonderful plant-based restaurateur up there in the Detroit area. And he can tell us all about how you can be whole food, plant-based, super healthy, and eat deliciously too. Welcome, my friend and fellow PETA's sexiest vegan over 50 2016, Dr. Joel Kahn. Well, thank you, and I say you are an MD stands for major diva, because the people the people at PETA found out, and I've been a long uh, fan of that. So anyways, thank you for having me on your very wonderful show. Oh, thank you. Well, it is wonderful to be having you in our grouping this month of all medical doctors every single week of January so that everybody's resolutions can actually stay put for a change. So for people who are listening to this show for the first time, who don't know much about vegan living, about plant-based eating at all, can you describe for them what a whole foods plant-based diet is and why you as a physician think it's the way people really ought to be feeding themselves? Um, Sure. And I imagine there's a little spectrum there, whole food, plant-based, and it's the word plant-based because... That leaves wiggle room. Does that leave 10% of the plate could be other than plants? Um, If you do it by calories, that could be 50% of the calories are from other than plants because plants are usually so calorie 
um, uh, light and a piece of meat, a piece of fish, a piece of pork can be so calorie dense. Um, so there is a little controversy. I like the term plant diet. I'm whole food plant diet. I take I the word it. based out because it leaves some, you know, too much, too much room for patients and the public to interpret. I own restaurants. They're plant restaurants, not plant-based restaurants. I apologize. I wrote a book called The Plant-Based Solution. I actually regret choosing that title and not calling it The Plant Solution. Um, it's not that I ever criticize my patients, my peers, my friends, if they choose to eat a 70, 80, 90, 95% diet of uh, plants and the rest of from animal sources. I don't criticize them. Uh, but I want to make it clear that, one, it's possible as a medical doctor advising a patient. We know from my own personal history of 43 years of eating only plants and not being dead yet at almost age 61 with enough energy to you know, run around the planet every day, basically. I know from the medical science, we know from the American um, Nutrition and Dietetics Association, and we can go on and on other endorsements, it is possible to construct a diet only of plants and have excellent health and have a lower risk of chronic diseases that are decimating American health, like obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. So, um, you know, you've got now, uh, you know, the word vegan, a little different word and implications on animal ethics, a wonderful, wonderful way to approach life when you actually care about other sentient beings. But that word goes back to 1944, this whole movement of both the ethical side and the science side is, you know, 50, 60 years old. But just in one sentence, the bulk of the data is the more plants you put on your plate and the less animal foods of every kind you put on your plate, you will increase the odds that you will not end up on medication and with illness and have a uh, challenging middle to end of your life. It can't guarantee it. There's genetic factors and other factors we deal in a world with air pollution and water quality and uh, plastics and uh, herbicides, pesticides that are serious threats to our health. But you will optimize the chance that you will be a healthy 50, 60, 70 year old and beyond uh, if you put colorful rainbow plants on your plate every day as much as you can everywhere you can. Love it. And, and I've thought that same thing about based. It's just unfortunate, but it, it gives that kind of wiggle room that, that we don't really need. I'll tell you the phrase that I'm liking, and I actually stole this from the Lupin Cotidian restaurant chain. It's a Belgian chain. I don't know if you have them in Detroit, but we have them here. It's a great place for vegan breakfast. It's not I, a completely I can't vegan say restaurant. It, so I, say, I say LPQ. Yeah, LPQ. And they say botanical. And oh. I love the idea of eating a botanical diet. Right. I, I eat from the world of botany. So that's kind of cool. But on the same note, Dr. Khan, how much credit do we get just in the health world? I'm not talking about the animals now, even though they're number one for me. But just for health, how much good do we get from not eating animal foods? And how much good do we get from eating plant foods? Um, right. And, you know, it, it's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of there has been serious science analysis and reports. I'm just pulling these out of my brain. I don't have the articles in front of me. Um, there was a study in June or so of 2019 called the Global Burden of Disease Study. This is a 
massive undertaking funded by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in 190 countries looking at causes of death, causes of disease. And for the first time, they announced in July or June of 2019, the number one cause of death in the world in these 190 countries is poor nutrition choices by the residents of the countries. It used to be high blood pressure ranked number one and a little further down is heart disease and cancer, but actually poor nutrition choices, 22% of all deaths in the world, that's 11 million deaths a year are due to poor nutrition choices. In some places, it's still undernutrition, malnutrition, and starvation. But in the United States, we have many more uh, cases of overnutrition and poor nutritional choices and excess than we do of starvation and undernutrition. They also went beyond that to go to what were the nutrients that were most missing and deficient from the diet contributing to death. Death was the end point, pretty serious end point. And it was nuts and seeds. It was whole grains, it was fruits, and it was vegetables. And those were in the top tier of the top five, six, seven uh, foods that were out there. Soy products were on the list too. So that is one little piece of recent massive data. Um, and if you play and you know work with the data, they estimated that 80% of those 11 million annual deaths due to nutrition could potentially be delayed until some later point with good health. Um, I think it was Oxford University calculated if the general public around the world shifted to a more plant botanical diet, we might be able to save 8 million medical deaths a year, kind of a different database, but sounds like, you know, reasonably similar numbers in the world. Because again, if you look at cancer, diabetes, brain disease like Alzheimer's, heart disease, heart attacks, um, you know, COPD, lung disease, um, of course, that's partly uh, due to smoking, but most of these other diseases, they're, they're felt 75 to 85% are due to lifestyle of which nutrition. Uh, Dr. David Katz loves to talk about feet, fingers, fork. Do you use your feet to walk? Do you use your fingers to smoke? And do you use your fork to eat wisely or poorly? But the strongest single factor is what you do with your fork, your spoon, your knife. It's food-based choices in terms of uh, avoiding chronic diseases that are rampant now in Western society. So these are such big, powerful numbers. We haven't even touched about loving animals and treating them appropriately or loving our earth and treating our earth appropriately. Just human health and human disease, you know, enormous numbers when you go on a global perspective, going more botanical. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about um, cheating death. You posted something the other day, and I do want to encourage our listeners to follow you online on every possible platform, because you are a really great social media poster. You find some fascinating information that I don't see anywhere else. So not long ago, you, you posted a study, and in the summary, it said about vegans, epidemiologic studies consistently show lower disease rates such as lower incidence of cancer and cardiovascular disease. But mortality rates are comparable with rates in vegetarians and occasional meat eaters. So are we living longer than anybody? And how can we not be living longer if we're not getting heart disease and cancer, which seems to kill the most people? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting 
point. I don't know that I have complete clarity on answering it. So let me just introduce a couple terms that are used more in the aging medicine field, something I also spend a fair amount of time on, both reading and with my patients. You know, we all know the term lifespan and everybody gets it. And in fact, United States does not have the best lifespan in the world. Israel, Singapore, Hong Kong uh, have uh, much longer lifespans. And in fact, in the United States, lifespan has actually dropped each of the last three years. First time that's happened since the 1918 uh, flu epidemic around the world. So uh, there are real markers that there are serious problems. I, the three-year drop in lifespan in the United States has been attributed to a rise, sadly, in suicide, the opioid addiction, and our continued deaths due to cardiovascular disease. Those are the big three. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't beat the war on heart disease in the United States. It's still uh, taking many, many lives unnecessarily and very sadly. And then there's a term health span. You know, wouldn't it be great, you know, to be able to live to age 85, 90? You might want to pick older, you might want to pick younger, but only the last month of your life was involved with medical issues, hospitals, medication, maybe even the last week of your life. Uh, my 89-year-old grandfather on my mother's side was swimming in a pool in Florida on the Passover holiday, had a stroke, died in the pool. I mean, he literally had 10 minutes at the end of his life of poor health. His health span was 99.9% of his life because he was perfect and uh, coherent. Wouldn't you like that? So it does appear that there is some controversy whether we really know, because remember 1944, the word vegan was invented. This movement wasn't really known in the 50s and hardly known in the 60s, except to you know a few and small groups of people. I don't think we can say for sure we know that we will live longer. I'll give you one clue that suggests it, but I don't know that we know for sure. But if we can compress, that's another term, compress the needs for the healthcare system. There's nothing good about hospitals and medication and surgeries and chemotherapy. If we can compress that towards the very end of our life, and there is a suggestion that we can at least delay the onset of these otherwise, you know, big killers and uh, robbers of quality of life. I think that's still a very exciting concept. Let me leave tremendous hope there. You know, it's 2020. When we do this podcast in 2030, number one, Victoria, you're gonna look younger and longer like you do every year. Number two, there are so many breakthroughs coming in the world of anti-aging medicine, authentic breakthroughs. We're gonna not just depend on our plant botanical diet, we're gonna have gene therapy and stem cell therapy, and we're gonna know if there's certain nutrients from plants like resveratrol, which we don't know now extends life. We're gonna have so much better insight. It, even if we just delay disease for the next decade so we can participate in this coming explosion, maybe expensive or maybe not, but this coming explosion of new approaches to human health and human life extension, um, I'm very optimistic. So the data we know now isn't gonna be the data we know in 10 years, not even close. The one clue that kind of kicked this all off was there were reports in the 1950s that the um, city of Loma Linda had an average lifespan that was 10 years longer than the rest of California based on census data. And that triggered 
the onset of the question, what's going on in Loma Linda? And now we throw out the word Loma Linda and Blue Zones and uh, Dan Butner and all those kind of things like we knew that all along. We didn't know that. Our government started funding some research that identified there were way more vegetarians and significantly more vegans in Loma Linda than the rest of California, the rest of the United States. And they studied, you know, why, what was different about their diet, what was different about their rates of diabetes and cancer and heart disease. So we have that kind of epidemiologic data that suggests if we really could ever figure out how to do the right study and we could reproduce what's happening in Loma Linda, those beautiful graphs that show as you go from omnivore to pesco-vegetarian to lacto-ovo-vegetarian all the way to vegan in Loma Linda, you just see the rates of disease go down and down and down the more adherent the Adventists are to the Bible recommended plant diet. So I think, you know, I'm very hopeful. We really are seeing a difference and we've seen disease reverse, uh, but I think we really are in the ability to prevent a lot of the disease that robs people of quality of life. That's exciting. So uh, Dr. Khan, as a cardiologist, just explain to us, everybody listening has a heart and I don't think most of us know very much about it. We know that heart disease is the number one killer. And my assumption is that we're talking about cardiovascular disease. We're talking about something that has to do with clogged arteries. But then we hear, well, there's also inflammation and there's trouble with your endothelial cells. Can you just lay this out for us? And then maybe after the break, we can touch on heart failure and atrial fibrillation and some of these other things that we might get, but we don't know what they are. Sounds so like so much this. fun. This is fun. I love talking about hearts. I like talking about heart health more than heart disease, but they, uh, they often dominate the same conversation. So you're absolutely right. But just to cut to the chase, there are a variety of heart diseases. Um, cardiovascular disease would be the kind of parent term. Um, some are congenital disease that children are born with or show up later in life, but we can't fix that with plants. It'd still be a good idea to eat a botanical diet. And now uh, there are rhythm problems. We can talk about that after the break, as you mentioned, where the heart skips and all. But the real, and there is congestive heart failure where there is backup of fluid and shortness of breath. Usually uh, what we're talking about is arteries of the heart. The heart is this beautiful muscle that beats uh, about the size of your fist and beats 100,000 times a day on average. And it's fed as soon as the heart pumps that bright red oxygenated blood out of the heart muscle. The first thing the heart does is it feeds itself because there's two little openings just above the heart, the left heart artery, the right heart artery. The red oxygenated blood immediately goes right back into the heart because it takes a tremendous amount of energy second after second after second to keep the heart muscle primed and going and, and consuming. You only have about 15 seconds of energy built up in your heart to sustain it. You have to constantly make energy, make energy, make energy, new blood, new blood, new oxygen, new nutrients. Um, so we feed ourselves through those left and right heart arteries. And unfortunately, they are very prone to not stay clean and pristine. We're always born with clean and pristine heart arteries, every one of us. But we know from studies from Bogalusa, I think it's Louisiana, I always get uh, mixed up which state it is, that they've been doing studies for 50 years. You can take an 18-year-old in a southern city. You can run a little ultrasound on their neck. You can already see plaque 
abnormal damage to arteries in 18, 19 year olds based on the Southern diet, air pollution and other factors. We know from the Korean War, soldiers that died in an explosion and had an autopsy, that up to 80% of these 20, 21 year old Americans that died of other causes had signs of plaque in their heart arteries. And not that rarely, there was actually already some significant plaque in their heart, heart arteries. And that was reproduced in the Vietnam era. And it was reproduced during desert storm from autopsies done on soldiers. So this disease starts and progresses slowly for decades and decades, slowly narrowing and causing arteries to become hardened, calcified, lack of flexibility, blood pressure problems develop from a lack of flexibility of the arteries. This slowly progressive pinching of arteries can rob the heart of nutrients and blood supply. And we just talked about how important it is. The heart has a really unlimited blood supply. Um, inside there are, I didn't mention, 50,000 miles of arteries through the body from the heart up to the brain, down to the tips of the toes. That's twice around the planet, every one of you has 50,000 miles of arteries in your body, and every artery is lined with a single cell wallpaper called the endothelium, not a word used very much in the public, endothelium. And we learned 21 years ago when the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded to three scientists that this endothelium, this wallpaper in the arteries, if we eat well, if we don't smoke, if we monitor our blood pressure, blood sugar, uh, if we have good genetics, we keep this wallpaper super healthy. It makes chemicals that resist plaque, makes chemicals that resist blood pressure problems and blood clotting. One of them is the uh, chemical called nitric oxide. Uh, that when we eat watermelon and leafy greens like arugula and beets and pine nuts, we favor the odds we're going to make a lot of nitric oxide. And if we damage our endothelium, if we damage this uh, lining of our 50,000 miles of arteries by smoking, by eating high saturated fat foods like coconut oil and uh, marbled beef, uh, particularly if it's barbecued and grilled, um, if we let our blood pressure go up and don't check it, if we damage it, we won't make that nitric oxide. We don't have the resistance to fight uh, the factors in the blood like high cholesterol and inflammation that might cause plaque and we start to clog up our arteries. So, you know, I used to be a cardiologist that was, I'm like a catcher at the uh, end of the baseball diamond. I had to wait till the ball was in my glove. Patients were in the emergency room, having heart attacks, uh, dropping over dead, having chest pain while mowing the lawn. You know, I was waiting till those arteries were terribly blocked and I'm trained to rush in and do a catheterization and put in a stent, but I'm treating the disease a decade or 15 or 20 years, maybe 30 years after it started. My practice has shifted to what I call upstream cardiology. You know, I detect plaque now in 35, 40, 45, 50 year olds at a very early stage, hopeful that we can influence and interrupt the cycle that pretty much inexorably goes on and gets worse and worse. We know for sure we can stop it. We know for sure we can reverse plaque. Uh, even if you catch it in an advanced stage, that's the amazing work of Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. Joel Furman to some degree. Uh, we can, but I'd much rather catch it so early that you know we're not pushing a, a big stone uphill. We're just dealing with small adjustments and small problems, which is why plant diets are so powerful because they really, really are good for the endothelium and the arteries. You mentioned saturated fat. Now, when I first got into eating differently from, from the norm, 
saturated fat was the big enemy. And we knew or we were told that one reason that vegans tended to do well cardiovascular wise was that we weren't getting saturated fat from animal foods. And of course, we were also avoiding tropical oils such as palm and, and coconut. But lately, that seems to be not quite as clear. And, and I'm hearing more that most fats aren't great. And go ahead and eat coconut as long as it's the whole food and not the oil. What's clarity on that? Uh, yeah, I'll give again, I love little mini history lessons. So um, really it was around World War II when there was a rise in heart attacks in the United States. And really in the mid 50s when Eisenhower had his massive heart attack, tremendous amount of research started getting funded and explored why are heart attacks rising. Therein came the famous Dr. Ansel Keys, PhD, University of Minnesota, who did a study on executives in Minnesota having heart attacks, had a hypothesis that what they were eating post-World War II were pretty good, robust times. The United States and people were eating uh, high on the hog, literally. And at any rate, he had a hypothesis, maybe what their diet uh, consumed had to do with his rise in heart attacks. His theory was around fat in general. He quickly adjusted that theory and then did multiple studies. He published over 300 scientific papers um, that he refined it and identified it was a much stronger correlation with saturated fat in the diet, saturated fat coming from dairy like cheese, coming from red and marbled meats and chicken and pork, coming from, as you said, unusually certain plants like coconut and palm, although Dr. Keyes didn't study coconut and palm to any great extent. Uh, he was in the Mediterranean basin in Italy, and there aren't too many coconuts in Italy uh, traditionally. At any rate, it was pretty conclusive, enough to lead the American Heart Association and others to recommend that we begin to reduce the saturated fat content of our diet, which usually isn't a comment about coconut and palm. It's a reduction in meats and cheeses and replace them with plant foods. I don't believe that has... Um, change at all <clears throat> as a scientific foundation or as a recommendation. Uh, I think it was mid-2017, the American Heart Association had a presidential advisory panel. They basically supported everything Dr. Ansel Keys ultimately concluded in his very long and august career. He lived to 100.5, so he must have known or had very good luck or knew a few things about nutrition because he lived to a very old and productive age. But the American Heart Association in 2017, you know, 50, 60 years after Dr. Ansel Key's original work, confirmed we don't see any data that coconut oil is of value or is of safety. We advise avoiding it. Uh, strong statements. We strongly stand by the American Heart Association. We should reduce saturated fat in the diet by reducing meats and dairies and whole uh, milks and um, coconut and such, uh, to under 5% of calories in the diet, which is quite low. Just to bring it right up to date and show you that this is still very mainstream, saturated fat is in the bullseye of a nutrient, and it's obviously we don't go to the grocery store and buy saturated fat, unless you're buying coconut oil, where you basically are. We're buying food, so we're talking about reducing cheeses and a lot of baked goods have a lot of saturated fat from the grocery store and uh, meats and um, to some degree eggs. Eggs have some degree of saturated fat. 
um, that there was a massive cardiology study published in November called the ischemia trial. If you have bad heart blocked arteries and you're a candidate for bypass or stents, could you possibly avoid the surgery and the stents and get by with medication, diet, and fitness? The study was remarkable because it showed that it was possible to avoid stents and bypass in the vast majority of people. We're doing way too many bypasses and way too many stents and way too few proper medications with diet and exercise. What was the goal of this ischemia trial dietary-wise? To lower saturated fat to under 7% of calories. A pretty aggressive guideline that's right up to date and right in the headlines in every newspaper in the world in the last wow. couple of months. And so I have to feel I think stop in a second, Dr. Khan. We will be back right after this break. Hold wow. that. Wow. <laughs> You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan program. I'm having so much fun and learning so much and probably extending my life in this conversation with Dr. Joel Kahn. And I hope that all of that is happening for each and every one of you as well. I do want to give a quick shout out before we get back in our conversation with Dr. Khan to our wonderful sponsor, Compliment and Compliment Plus. These are supplements made by vegans for vegans of the dietitian, Dr. Pamela Ferguson, and the No Meat Athlete are together in this wonderful company that makes a supplement just for us. Because even with a really great botanical diet, we could very likely come up short in vitamin B12 and possibly also vitamin D, EPA, and DHA, and even some other nutrients. So Complement is a wonderful spray with your B12, D3, and EPA, DHA, omega-3 fatty acids. And if you want full nutritional insurance, there's Complement Plus, which adds some other nutrients, including vitamin K2 and the trace mineral iodine and selenium. So we're going to talk about some of these nutrients with Dr. Khan. I mean, certainly you can get them other places than from Complement Plus, but it is a very cool way to get them. And because I think so, I'm going to give you a wonderful code for saving money if you choose to go to lovecompliment.com and get yourself one of these products, the spray of D3, B12, and omega-3 fully formed fatty acids, you put Main Street Vegan in capital letters in the discount code. And if you are getting yourself some Compliment Plus, just put Main Street Vegan capital letters with a plus sign after and save yourself some money on this wonderful product. And thanks to Matt, actually there are two Matts there at Compliment and Pamela and everybody at uh, Compliment and Compliment Plus for your support of the Main Street Vegan program. So Dr. Khan, you were about to tell us something important and the clock said stop, so please continue. Yeah, I think we were, if 
Finishing up on the question, are we confused or do we have clarity on the topic of fats in the diet? And, you know, we don't really need to spend much time anymore talking about these artificially created trans fats that seem like an amazing idea to make margarine smoother and easier. But now we realize raised cholesterol, raised blood sugar, and they're pretty much out of the market. Thank goodness. There are some naturally occurring trans fats in meats and uh, poultry that is still an issue for those that don't eat a completely botanical diet but uh, us plant eaters don't need to worry about it so we're left with are all fats bad are saturated fats potentially dangerous and what about the other kinds of fats it gets very sciencey but the polyunsaturated fats so i think it's fair to conclude the scientific data is still very strong that we should limit saturated fat containing foods in the diet, which we do as plant eaters naturally, and we enjoy the benefits from it, and our endothelium enjoys the benefits from it. Um, saturated fat foods like coconut oil are particularly damaging to the lining of the GI tract. And if you have a high coconut oil saturated fat meal, <clears throat> at least if you're a mouse or a rat, you will release bacterial toxins into your bloodstream very quickly. And uh, another piece of data that says these are not healthy foods to consume on a regular basis or at all. So I avoid them. When we're, well, then we get to polyunsaturated fats, which include the omega-3 fatty acids. And I always give a shout out. You just mentioned a product. Maybe, oops, I thought I could shake my compliment plus bottle and you'd hear the capsules inside because it's also what I take and it's also what I advise my patients to take, frankly, whether they're plant-only eaters or not because I think it's a pretty superior combination. But humans can't make omega-3 fatty acids like EPA and DHA. We can't make them. They are important for cell membrane and brain health. They help lower triglycerides and uh, can be important for inflammation and joints. So I check blood levels and I find my plant eaters are low and I find my omnivore eaters are low. And uh, I believe it's a real big onus to teach people ground flax seeds and chia seeds and hemp parts and walnuts and green leafies, maybe chlorella, because chlorella is pretty high in omega-3, but supplementing with something that has in the world of us plant eaters, algae-based omega-3 is a very good idea in my practice. So that's why I do use uh, Compliment Plus, uh, just as you mentioned, uh, and uh, I share your enthusiasm. This is a breakthrough product. And then you get just, just a couple left. There's monounsaturated fats found in olive oil. Um, uh, what are some? Uh, can, uh, canola oil has some monounsaturated fat. There's an algae oil that is monounsaturated fat. And the last one is like uh, vegetable oils. And it turns out, even though it's very unpopular to talk about vegetable oils, I choose to keep my diet very low in added oils. There is a very large database from, again, Harvard School of Public Health. If you're eating butter, lard, ghee, animal-based fats, and you shift over to the lowly vegetable oils, organic canola oil, and people will throw tomatoes at you when you say that word, or safflower oils, you actually are dropping your cardiovascular risk significantly by adding those oils in, uh, as opposed to butter or lard. Eating oil-free or eating low oil is always a good option, particularly if you're struggling with heart disease, weight issues, type 2 diabetes. So that's the quick spectrum. Not all oils are dangerous. I'll give you the last classic example. Dr. Ansel Keys studied Finland. They ate 40% of their calories from fat. They had the highest heart attack rate in the world, in the Western world, but their diet was largely saturated fat. They ate a lot of salami, bologna, butter, and cheese. 
in Crete, uh, island off of Greece, same time period, 40% of their calories were from fat and they had almost no heart disease cases, but it was largely olive oil and natural oils found in nuts and seeds. So it isn't always that a natural source of oils and fats is dangerous. Plants beat animals and uh, polyunsaturated and monounsaturated clearly beat saturated to make it a complex issue, hopefully somewhat simple. Well, you've simplified it today, so thank you so much for that. So while we're still on heart disease prevention and reversal, what's the role of exercise? Um, it's, it's great. Uh, it's preventive. I'm at a standing desk right now. I'm pretty much always at a standing desk, either pop it down and I sit, pop it up and I stand. Uh, I can't, uh, you know, it's some limited activity during the day that helps taking the stairs, parking your car, dancing, doing yard work, cleaning the house, let alone doing activity. There's no doubt that the more you focus on minutes per day, minutes per week of fitness. Uh, you know, we know that just 20, 30 minutes of sitting activates changes in our metabolism, slows our metabolism, makes us a little more insulin resistant, may change our triglyceride levels. So, you know, some people have jobs, they have no choice. You're in a cubicle all day or you're driving a delivery truck or uh, you're a police officer in a car. There's jobs that require sitting and I feel badly for those people still five minutes an hour makes a different movement. But you know, we need to build in healthy activity and I'm a big fan of not hurting yourself. I love the gym and I love acting macho, but I just, you know, very careful not to add on those extra weights just because somebody's watching and throw my back out and then I'm not exercising. You know, healthful exercise, healthy walking, healthy biking. We heard reports very recently that if you have the option of biking or walking to work, like they do in Copenhagen, where they study fitness pretty much better than anybody. Um, you may reduce your heart attack risk and extend your life. A lot of us can't walk and bike to work in the depths of the winter in Michigan, but uh, make it an effort if you can, and just try to take safe routes where you don't get hit. Um, very interesting, I'll just go back to Copenhagen and answer your question. They've had a really interesting database in Copenhagen of 25,000 healthy citizens 25 years ago, asked all kinds of questions, and now they followed them up for health and survival and disease and heart attacks. And there is no doubt the healthier exercisers in Copenhagen 25 years ago had much less disease. But if you ask the question, do runners, do swimmers, does badminton, does tennis, which one of the disease, of the exercise activities has the most benefit? Believe it or not, in this very large and well-regarded study, it was group activities, including tennis and badminton and squash, that being a solo runner or a solo swimmer, I can't help but think a rich role, there is actually an advantage to be around other humans when you exercise. So if you can get a buddy to walk in Central Park or you know uh, somebody that you can do group fitness with, uh, there may be just even a little extra tweak. People are pack rats. They like to be around other people most of the time. Well, that sounds like a happy maker. And I'm looking down at my dog who just came back from Central Park. I didn't get any exercise benefit this time <laughs> since he didn't go with me. <laughs> the dog walker? But, uh, the dog walker today, yeah. Um, twice a week, my husband and I <laughs> get that job turned over to somebody else. But it's wonderful to walk with the dog. I mean, it's not so great, maybe cardiovascular, because they like to stop and sniff a lot. But you get some love factor in there, and at least out moving. So 
How about stress? You know, when a wonderful Dr. Robert Ostfeld, I love him to pieces, comes to speak for Main Street Vegan Academy, he'll often show the slide of what happened during World War II when the Nazis invaded uh, some Scandinavian country and, and took the animals and how the heart disease uh, went down to almost nothing. And then when peace returned and the animal foods returned, the heart disease went back up, which always leads me to think they had to be so incredibly stressed with Nazis at their doorstep. And yet the heart disease still went down. And yet it's even in the vernacular conversation when people are having a very stressful time, they'll say, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. So where does that fit in? Yeah, stress is real. You know, we can go back, and many people know the term type A behavior, type B behavior. A uh, medical doctor in New York, Dr. Meyer Friedman, introduced those terms decades ago. And uh, Herbert Benson at Harvard uh, did studies on the stress response and stress breathing and such. I mean, there's a good foundation of science that there are physiologic changes that you can measure. Blood pressure goes up, cortisol may go up, adrenaline may go up, blood vessels constrict. And without a strategy, we can't avoid stress, but without a strategy to manage stress, um, you know, we may set ourselves up for earlier diseases. There's one aspect commonly made statement that if you look at a primary care doc, family doc, 70, 80% of the visits to the doc might actually be stress-based symptoms uh, from back pain to tingling to headaches to stomach pain. The root cause is actually poorly managed stress. And then we also know like you take an event like a heart attack. There are uh, studies that say what triggers a heart attack the moment it happens. And, you know, some of it is un, uh, uncontrolled anger, uh, yelling and screaming. And, you know, we all can picture that kind of episode going on in either a Hollywood movie or in our own life. Um, so it's a real deal and we can't run from it. We just have to manage it. And, you know, a healthy diet of plants helps manage stress. We also feel we're doing something for ourselves, even if we can't control all the other factors. Um, Good night's sleep helps manage stress, and it's really critical, and we appreciate more than ever. We're bombarded with the opportunity to stay awake 24 hours a day and watch things and play things and learn things. We can't do it. We, we can't outsource and get a virtual assistant for our sleep. we got to do it. It uh, doesn't matter if you're uh, Elon Musk or Victoria Moran or Joel Kahn. You've got to get sleep. There's no way to offload your brain right now to a chip and and work 24 hours a day. Um, we need breathing practices, whether you call it yoga, whether you call it an app like Headspace or the Calm app on your phone. I teach people something called 478 breathing. And if you were to Google that, it's a little 75 second breathing strategy that can really calm your sympathetic and parasympathetic system. We all need something like that. Uh, we also need friendship and community and love and affection and appreciation. Those all you know, certainly are important components of the blue zone life and healthy life and joy. So, um, yeah, I think we just need stress management strategies and we need to build them into workplaces and build them into our own lives. Uh, I use humor and comedy and music. I love all of those. Uh, they just help, you know, keep things in perspective. You know, this is really going to matter in five years what is upsetting me now or even in five days is going to really matter. And, you know, I think a gratitude practice of just being grateful for the health and the 
things you have in life, even if they aren't everything, but they are what you got. And a whole lot of people in the world would love what you have and they trade with you in a heartbeat. A For gratitude sure. practice really you know, helps put that in perspective. You know? Oh, that's so beautiful. Somebody was telling me about a gratitude practice where you're also grateful for the stuff that you wish wasn't happening. Like, you know, I'm grateful for this problem because I'm, I'm going to see the resolution to it. I'm, I'm grateful for this annoyance because it's building my character. And I thought, well, that's a different take, but... <laughs> I agree. Really you know, to- I'm grateful that I've added on more stories for my eulogy in about 100 years. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> so just so that people who, who are saying, okay, you said you were going to talk about those other areas of heart disease. So is there anything that we can do lifestyle-wise to forestall congestive heart failure and some of these other heart issues that are not particularly what we've been talking about so far? Yeah, congestive heart failure is a huge problem. Uh, it it does concentrate in the super elderly when their heart gets particularly stiff and aged. Uh, it can rob quality of life. You know, it's an enormous cost to the medical system. People rushing to the emergency room, $10,000 of expenses a day, coming back two weeks later, it all happens again. Uh, the number one cause of heart failure is either a previous heart attack and we know that we can use our plant nutrition and our fitness and our stress management and our uh, uh, cessation from smoking and uh, cut our heart attack rate by 70, 80, 90%. Uh, we also know probably the second most frequent cause of heart failure is high blood pressure and its consequences. And we know we can have a big impact on our weight, our sleep, and, and uh, combine it with our blood pressure. And also there are preventive strategies. And then I would say the last one that's just so common is atrial fibrillation, a particular irregular heartbeat uh, where the heart is really completely out of synchronization, puts us at risk for stroke, uh, cuts out the efficiency of our heart, may cut out some of our lifespan. Um, you know, we don't understand all causes, but overweight, sleep apnea, high blood pressure, um, all are related to um, the risk of atrial fibrillation. Uh, inflammation, we think eating plants is very anti-inflammatory as opposed to eating bacon and sugar processed uh, baked goods and such. I think Dr. Danielle Bellardo in Philadelphia has talked about doing a prospective study about plant diets for atrial fibrillation. We don't have that data at this point. It would be interesting to know it, but you know we know it. It helps the collaterals of weight and blood pressure and inflammation and uh, potentially uh, improving sleep quality, which are very big factors in atrial fibrillation. So that kind of fleshes out in my day-to-day practice. I'm seeing cholesterol disorders, blood pressure disorders, uh, coronary artery disease in an early stage or an advanced stage, very often an early stage. Um, congestive heart failure less commonly. That tends to be a hospital-based kind of diagnosis and management. Uh, but um, I can't think of a cardiovascular disorder that wouldn't be better on plant botanical diets. It used to be a problem with the drug warfarin, but warfarin is used far less than it used to be. So people on the drugs you see on TV, Zarelto and all, they can eat all the spinach and kale and bok choy and arugula they want, which is a real breakthrough to ease their diet into a healthy perspective. Wonderful. So I want to get a little bit holistic here because you are America's holistic heart doc. And anybody that 
is not yet uh, completely familiar with Dr. Joel Kahn, will put all his information on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. His website is Dr. Joel Kahn, K-A-H-N.com. On Twitter, he is at Dr. J Kahn. He's all over everywhere. But I want to tell you what happened to me on New Year's Day. I was speaking at the JCC. They had this wonderful all-day health fair, all kinds of fitness classes, and a whole food plant diet classes, wonderful things. And I was talking with a woman who didn't realize that I was going to be speaking. She just thought I, I was there. And she said, I've been to these whole food plant-based classes, but that diet is so extreme. I'm just exercising more. Instead, I'm exercising four days a week. And my thought was, that's good for you, but it's not helping climate change. And then I thought, well, of course, she doesn't know there's a connection. Nobody ever told her that. So do you think that that physicians and others who are recommending a botanical diet for health might want to bring some of these other areas in too, just so that people understand all there is to it? Yeah, I think it's really important, in fact, to add in these other factors, because you know, you know, in your years of doing this, and mine too. Although health, I think, is the is the largest input into uh, assuming a plant diet. There are people that are motivated more by animal animal rights, waking up one day and realizing a piece of chicken was once connected to a cute little white feathered uh, animal pecking around the ground, and and there's more and more people uh, with Joaquin Phoenix at the Golden Globe, making this the focus of headlines all over the world, and many other wonderful people, James Cameron, yourself. Uh, but I always bring up all these aspects in a public talk. I did a public talk last night in suburban Detroit, um, because you don't know which one's going to resonate the most. And uh, with fires in Cal- uh, California, and fires in the Amazon, and now fires in Australia, and you know concern about the quality of the planet we live on, uh, Elon Musk building us little environments on the moon to live on because it's not going to be so pleasant here and such things. I think you bring up all and you know, our obligation is to educate from all those perspectives because you know, even the person enjoying perfect health still should consider this eating plan for all the other reasons and the ones you just brought up. And how can we be allies? You know, there are lots of reasons for not consuming animal products. And so a lot of people, as you say, are motivated by animals, some are motivated by the environment, and, and others by health. And yet very often, you'll kind of hear people in one camp having a problem with somebody in another camp. Do you have any thoughts on how we can come together to celebrate what we all really care about and, and push this right. movement forward? Well, I'm a bit distressed because I just very quickly, I think there's two camp problems. One is actually a camp problem within the plant-based movement. And very little nuances have created separation as opposed to unity. And I am dismayed by that. I mean, whether you use flax and I use algae oil or whether you have a walnut and I don't, you know, 99% of the plant-based doctors out there and the plant-based nutritionists and dietitians are much more common than they're different. And yet there are some serious differences. And I think it's time to throw the differences away publicly and grab onto the fact that we can't 
lessen the message because of these small, sometimes science-based, sometimes emotional issues. And then you even get on a bigger perspective. We've got people in the paleo movement and people in uh, the ketogenic movement and people doing other dietary recommendations. I actually reach out to most of them because the one thing we can agree on, nobody's recommending processed garbage food at vending machines and gas stations and fast food restaurants, which are costing us a fortune and costing many people their health and their lives. And I'd rather stand on stage with somebody who's agreeing with me, you know, don't walk into McDonald's and Hardee's and Burger King and Carl's Jr. And if you're eating the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Me Burger, you know, don't do it too frequently because it's not really a whole and a healthy food. I'd rather grab hands with some of those people and really make a unified statement. And I have done that. I've been to paleo conferences and been on some very odd podcasts and uh, uh, Joe Rogan and other things because I think there needs to be unity in general. Uh, even if there's different voices with different approaches. I mean, I don't hate any of the people out there. They've been pretty rude to me at times, uh, and they've been kind to me at times. It's a mixed bag, but I'm much more a connector than a divider. Uh, there's there's no turf here I have to protect. Uh, I just want clean turf to grow nice, green, leafy vegetables in. You, you really are a connector. You, you do such amazing work. Tell us about the restaurant business really quickly in our two minutes and 40 seconds that we have left. Oh, okay, good. Um, the restaurant business is the hardest business in the world, as everybody will tell you. Um, a thousand moving parts. And if you did it great yesterday, it doesn't mean that the guy delivered the lion's mane mushrooms today. And you may have to uh, take it out. Your, your premier dish may be off the menu today because it's just, it literally, you're so dependent. Now we have a wonderful team. I have a small restaurant Detroit in a very large restaurant. Um, it's challenging every day. It's rewarding every day, very much like life, like raising children, even though we have very adult people we're working with. The customers are amazing and wonderful in general, uh, very much like raising children and all. Um, it's, it's, um, it's not for the weak of heart and it's not for the weak of pocketbook. It's, uh, uh, I'm not sure the future is large, elegant plant-based restaurants all over candle 79 being a very sad example, you know, in your, in your city, uh, closing just recently. So, um, yeah, there's so many opportunities to eat some variation of plant-based all over the United States, the havens of large, elegant restaurants, I think are of uncertain future actually. And and now where do we eat when we're in New York and I mean when we're in uh, Detroit and Ferndale? Yeah, we have Green Space Cafe in Ferndale and a smaller place called Green Space and Go in Royal Oak, Michigan. Wonderful. Okay, in this last minute, Dr. Joel Kahn, just give us a rundown of how you treat yourself, health-wise, mentally, spiritually. Yeah, I take um approaching 61 years and I am fortunately on zero medication. I have zero health problems. I have zero need to see a doctor. I do my tests though. I mean, I have had colonoscopies and I've had heart studies and labs and all. I don't take it lightly, but um, wake up every morning, about 10 minutes of a gratitude practice in bed before I grab my phone and jump out of bed. Uh, 20, 25 minutes of some kind of unusual workout every morning, high intensity yoga, high intensity exercise, stretching. I love a thing called the whole body vibration plate. It's a weird little exercise gig, a lot of push-ups. Um, I usually don't eat breakfast. I'm usually at work early. Uh, I usually bring lunch. I don't outsource my health to any, uh, you know, little cafe near my office. I bring my lunch. Uh, I practice some fasting. I often go 
14, 15 hours a day without eating, but that's plenty and, of time, 10 hours we a day. I'm so sorry. We have to stop with that. If you want to know and more I, about how Dr. Khan cares for himself, go to his website. Everybody <laughs> got we'll do it another show. Eat your veggies. <laughs>